Hi, my name is Patrice Rabao, and I'm a producer with WJFF Radio Catskill. Welcome to another edition of the Reporters Roundtable. Joining me today are journalists Liam Mayo of the River Reporter, Chris Riley with the Schwanenguak Journal, and Joseph Abraham from the Sullivan County Democrat, and Philip Pantusu from the Times Union. Before we get today, before we get to today's roundtable, just to remind you that the Reporters Roundtable has a podcast for full interviews. Search WJFF, The Reporters Roundtable, wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. Joe, what can you tell us about the latest news with Garnett Health, the hospital in the Catskills? They were looking to do away with their critical care unit, but according to the Department of Health, they can't. What can you tell us about that latest development? So when it comes to hospitals, it's sort of a what a difference the year makes situation because, you know, we were looking at in the middle of the pandemic, they were seeing record level volume. And so while you don't think about it from a business perspective, uh, you know, I would assume business was you know, quite well in terms of the fact that lots of people were using the hospitals. They also were receiving some federal funds. So, you know, their finances were in better shape. Uh, we recently spoke with um, Jonathan Schiller, who's the outgoing CEO of Garnet Health uh, Medical Center Catskills. His last day was last Friday. He's uh, took a position at Oneida Health, and uh, Jerry Dunleavy is going to be taking his place. And uh, pretty much he was explaining how, to me one time, that they just weren't feeling able to fill beds in, in many of their uh, units and how cost of labor, supplies, pharmaceuticals, temporary labor that, you know, they hired the travel nurses and such, which come at an expensive rate. Uh, premium payments were off the charts with this low volume. And he, so he said that the Garnet Health System as a whole was actually uh, about around $30 million behind budget, uh, whereas the uh, local Garnet Health Catskills Hospital was about $5 million behind budget alone. So uh, to address this, uh, the hospital sort of been making some decisions. Them and the board recently decided to consolidate the medical surgical unit. Uh, it's the third time that that's been done. And another thing they tried to do was they put an application out with the Department of Health, as you mentioned, to temporarily close their critical care unit for four months. So once the news got out there that they had put that application forward. Uh, many nurses locally were protesting and the State Nurses Association um, was protesting. In fact, the story even made it up into the Times Union, up into to Phillips' uh, uh, paper up there, just because of, of the attention that it was getting. And Aileen Gunther, our assemblywoman, has been very outspoken about you know why the critical care unit couldn't close. And there was a lot of concern about patient care because, look, we live in the middle of the Catskills. Uh, if they were to not have a critical care unit, you'd have to go at the closest. You'd have to go visit our friend Chris up in Ellenville, or you'd have to go to uh, out to Middletown uh, as far as your other options. So there was a lot of concern about that. And Albie Bachman, the county coroner, who also is a founder of Mobile Medic EMS, was recently talking in the legislature about just the transport times and how they were having to take people anyway before this application went through down to, um, to Orange County and sometimes down to Westchester. And some of the challenges that is presented, uh, you know, leading into the summer, which is when our cat skills are the busiest, uh, you know, there was a lot of advocacy by, um, you know, Gunther and, and these nurses for, for the DOH to reject it. And DOH came, made the decision and said, you cannot temporarily close your critical care unit. Um, and uh, Gunther called it a victory. Uh, the Nurses Association gave us a statement and said they were relieved by it. You know, on a local front, 
I reached out to some of the county legislators for their perspective, and a couple of them, you know, talked about how they need to find a balance, Garnett, because on one hand, they don't want to see critical uh, departments closed, but at the same time, these financial challenges remain. You know, the $5 million in the hole, the $33 million system wide in the hole, uh, they're not just going to go away. So the financial dilemma is likely to continue. And so I had asked uh, Jonathan Schiller before he'd left, so what's next? And, you know, at this point, they said the hospital was going to be, um, you know, evaluating all of their options. And, and I should point out that uh, no one's been laid off during this process of consolidation. They've just pretty much, I think, been moving people around or if they weren't renewing contracts, I believe, um, don't quote me, as we like to say, it was uh, a lot of the temp help people. But as far as the regular employees, there haven't been any layoffs. So, uh, yeah, so they have to try to figure out going back to the drawing board, the hospital, as far as how do you deal with these financial challenges? At hand. When this news broke first, I was seeing some comments online from people wondering whether the hospital could be on a path to to one day close. In your reporting, have you seen any signs that could make that true? Their CEO told our, you know, my boss that they have an unwavering support in Prentitolm to Sullivan County, and they're actually looking at expanding a lot of services as far as what's being offered. The rumor is that's out there, not that's been confirmed by the hospital, is that there might be, you know, some services that are diminished over time at this particular one. But I haven't heard anything about anything viable about a closure. The hospital's in any danger of closing, but we'll have to see, you know, as far as, you know, other, they have Orange County, uh, you know, Garnet and Orange and and that uh, as well. So, you know, We'll have to see. But yeah, as far as everything they've been saying is that we're not closing or supporting Sullivan County. And staying on the topic of health, there's word that the Sullivan County Public Health and the New York State Department of Health will be working together. What can you tell us about that? On the other hand, right, so a lot of things with people with their complaints about this possible closure at the hospital and the DOH, uh, who announced, you know, we announced in January, uh, reported that they were leaving their Monticello office, or they have had a regional office for several years. And everyone was talking about how, you know, Sullivan County is the 61st of 62nd counties in, in the state for health. And now the DOH could be leaving in that. So there was a big uproar over that. Uh, there was a joint press conference, as everyone will remember, back in February between um, State Senator Mike Martucci, New York State Assemblywoman Aileen Gunther, urging DOH to reconsider their decision. They were critical of what the DOH said their reasoning for leaving was, which was, quote, uh, difficulty finding adequate office space in the Monticello area. Uh, And so after a lot of uproar was created, it was announced the DOH, who was supposed to move in the spring, I believe it was like in the beginning of June, out of Sullivan County to a regional new regional office in Orange County, they were going to stay. There'd be a stay at least through the summer, which, as I stated earlier, is the busiest time uh, for the Catskills when Sullivan County's population goes from seventy-five thousand to around three hundred thousand. Uh, you know, and as far as with all the visitors that we receive, so pretty much uh, the with the DOH, uh, it was announced uh, at legislature when people were were bringing up some comments about it and concerns that Josh Potosic said that County uh, Attorney Mike McGuire is negotiating uh, with the DOH attorneys so that they would uh, 
have a presence of about four or five employees at the public health office in Liberty. So that would kind of keep some of them. I believe the, the Monticello office currently has around 20 employees. So this would go for about that to four or five employees that would specifically handle walk-ins. People have any you know concerns, but uh, Potosik said that he has been told by the uh, the DOH commissioner, Dr. Mary Bassett, that they are not going to be diminishing services and all the necessary site visits and inspections uh, that they do for restaurants and all the camps in the areas would continue and not be diminished. So that's where things currently stand. Keeping on mental health and public health, Philip Pantuza from the Times Union is back on the Reporters Roundtable. What can you tell us on what you're working on when it comes to mental health? A positive update on the mental health situation, at least in Ulster County, but it's going to help folks out in Sullivan County too. Uh, a lot of a lot of listeners might have remembered back um, early in the pandemic, um, Westchester Medical Center, which operates the Health Alliance at the Hudson Valley, uh, shut down its behavioral health unit at its hospital in Kingston, which that contained 40 inpatient psychiatric beds and 20 beds for detox and rehab. And at the time, they claimed um, that this was being done. And I think there's some truth to this um, in order to to meet a state mandated requirement for um, bed capacity in case of COVID surges. Uh, but those beds were the, were the only inpatient uh, mental health and detox beds in Ulster County. They also served a lot of patients in Sullivan County, which doesn't have inpatient um, services for, for those particular services. Those beds were never those beds were never actually used for COVID patients, but they have they've stayed closed for for more than two years now. And um, Westchester Medical Center had had neglected to make any kind of commitment to reopening them at any point, um, even though the executive order has long since expired, uh, requiring that they maintain a certain capacity. Well, the update here is that uh, after a lot of Kind of tough conversations between Ulster County and the State Health Department and Westchester Medical Center. Late last month, they announced, um, they jointly announced an agreement to bring back some of those inpatient services to the renovated Kingston Hospital on Mary's Avenue, um, opening the timeline right now is first quarter of 2023. So, right now, what they're looking at is 20 inpatient mental health beds, which is fewer than what than what were closed. But what's what's happened in the meantime is that the county has made a pretty large investment in trying to stand up more services um, along a continuum of care for psychiatric patients and patients in need of detox and rehab. So there's more outpatient services now uh, and um, more services for people at different points along the care of needs. So hopefully they don't have to, you know, get to the point where they require require an inpatient bed. So that's actually that's actually good news. And, and frankly, this is something I was reporting on for a lot over at the River Newsroom, uh, and then just did an update on it for, for the Times Union's Hudson Valley coverage. Frankly, it's something I didn't think was going to happen. It's I I, I kind of had a running joke with the press person for Westchester Medical Center who was often trying to get me to write about the new cardiac catheterization center or all these other new things. The joke was like, I'm finally writing a, a positive story about Westchester Medical Center. Um, so, so yeah, that's, that's actually, 
it's actually good news and, and I, I dug as much as I, as I could and really couldn't find anything bad about it, frankly, even, even the, the nurses unions uh, who have been leading the protests and the calls for bringing these services back seem pretty satisfied. They're skeptical, I think, of you know, the timeline, which I, I totally get it. They've been sort of lied to <laughs> on many occasions throughout this process, but um, it's, certainly, it's certainly a win for, for Ulster County and for Sullivan County, which again, has a lot of people in, in crisis and, and faces um, a lot of challenges on these fronts. Right, it, it is good news. It's good to hear that, that services are coming back and not being cut. Uh, especially for something very important as uh, mental health. So now, as far as the, the switch topics here uh, with you, Philip, uh, last week, the U.S. Department of Education joined an investigation looking into the sexual harassment complaints against the Andy Central School District Superintendent. Philip, what can you tell us about this story? Yeah, so this is something that um, that we've been following for, for a couple of months now. The, the school district superintendent um, for Andy, his name's Robert Chekar. He's been on leave, administrative leave since mid-February when um, a, a complaint was made by a fifth grader saying that uh, the superintendent had put his hand on her shoulder when they were alone. She found that contact unwelcome. Um, this was back in, this is back in February 14th. Now this is like a, you know, kind of a small town thing here, but the superintendent is also the district clerk and he's also the district's Title IX coordinator, who is the person responsible for receiving and examining complaints about gender discrimination and sexual harassment. So obviously that's a problem when the guy who is charged with overseeing the complaint is the person who is the subject of the complaint. Um, so those parents uh, in conjunction with the, with the school, um, with the school district made um, a request to the to the federal department of education to get involved the school district um, simultaneously had opened its own investigation they hired a law firm out of binghamton to lead that um, they've been making progress on that investigation over that time a couple more complaints have come out including some more some more troubling ones where the superintendent had made a comment about um, the development of one of the students in the school uh, and received a, a complaint from, from a counselor, a guidance counselor at the school who said that the superintendent would talk quite explicitly about um, relations with his wife when they were alone. Um, the Just last week, as, as you mentioned, the Department of Education, the Federal Department of Education formally opened uh, an investigation within its Office of Civil Rights. So they're now looking into that now. It's going to run parallel to the, to the law firm investigation that the, that the Andes District is running. Um, we had an, another development in, in that story just late last week, that guidance counselor that I mentioned. She told our reporter that she, um, she received notice on May 13th from the acting superintendent that she that he was going to be recommending that she be fired at the next school board meeting. Instead, she resigned. The, the acting superintendent tells us that the district had received a complaint about her from a parent. He couldn't really specify what that entailed, citing person, personnel confidentiality laws. But that counselor had been had been working for the district for, for several years, long beyond her, her sort of probationary, her four-year probationary period. And she's claiming that it was in retaliation for making the complaint. 
against against Chekar, the the superintendent who's on leave. One other one other note here that I think is is relevant. The the Andy superintendent he he had been the assistant principal at a middle school in Bristol, Connecticut, and was forced to resign in 2000 after an internal investigation found that he had repeatedly sexually harassed staff and made inappropriate comments to students. So it's not really the first time he's been faced with this kind of situation. And you know, I'm not really in the business of predicting what's going to happen here, but I would be kind of surprised if he was the superintendent at the start of the next school year. I would be very surprised too. Um, and like, let's turn the page over to, to you, Liam. New York City banned the sale of foie gras. That affects us here in Sullivan County because Sullivan County has two of the largest makers of foie gras in Sullivan County, LaBelle Farms and uh, Hudson Valley foie gras. What can you tell us about uh, this developing situation? Because I know it's been ongoing for a while about uh, the impact that it's having on those two farms. Just in terms of the timeline of the law, there was a law that was passed in back in 2019. I believe it was passed, uh, signed into bill, signed into law on November 25, 2019, banning the sale of foie gras in the city of New York. That law had sort of a three-year window before it went into effect. It's going to go into effect on November 25, 2022. So there's still a few months before then. But the recent development in it is that Sullivan County's Fogwa Farms, or Hudson Valley uh, Fogwa and LaBelle Farms, have filed a lawsuit against New York City claiming that the city has overstepped its authority in imposing this. And a lot of the argument that they're making rests on the kind of impact it will have on Sullivan County's farms. Uh, they're saying that New York City isn't just legislating this one thing that's being sold in New York City. They're indirectly attempting to legislate something in Sullivan County, which is outside of their authority and is also protected by several uh, statutes, at least one statute of the state's agricultural law. If you listen to the uh, words of the people who were in support of that bill, they knew that that was the effect they were going for. They specifically wanted to prohibit the practice of gavage, um, which is a practice that uh, involves feeding tubes being stuck down the throats of the ducks that then get turned into foie gras. Uh, it's the fatty duck liver, I believe, that is what foie gras is. And it's been decried as an inhumane practice, and New York City Council wanted to end it, so they banned foie gras, sort of knowing that it was going to have an impact on these Sullivan County farms. Uh, that impact is still theoretical, mostly. Um, it's close enough to the ban coming into effect that it's starting to impact their planning, which is why they're able to file the lawsuit now. Hudson Valley is set to lose around $5 million in sales and anticipates losing around 20 to 25% of its workforce. Uh, LaBelle looks to lose around 3 million and looks to cut most of its 100 employees, uh, which those are some of the biggest businesses in Sullivan County. And they also do a lot of business with feed produce providers and gas providers and other secondary providers in Sullivan County. So they're basically saying that New York City wanted to pass this law to put them out of business, and New York City can't do that. So we'll see whether the courts say New York City can do that or not. The people who are 
from the Fogwa farms embarking on this lawsuit say it could potentially set precedent because if New York City can have this kind of an impact on the Fogwa industry, could it have that same impact on the meat industry? We're banning everything that isn't from grass-fed cows. Uh, could it have that same effect on the egg market by banning everything that isn't from cage-free chickens? So it's, in one sense, a, a small lawsuit because it only impacts two businesses, but the ripple effects from it could be much farther. And so we'll keep an eye on that as it continues to develop. Right. And I said, definitely I'm glad you mentioned the ripple effect that this could happen. It it's, might only affect two farms, but the ripple effect that could it could have on other businesses that support that farm, like feeds and other industries like that. Um, so turning our eyes on technology, the Sullivan County Broadband LDC has really recently gotten a $1.7 million grant from the Federal Economic Development Administration. Liam, let us know what is all that about and how does it affect us? Hopefully it gives more people broadband that internet access that don't currently have broadband internet access. That's the ultimate goal a couple of years on. Right now, the impact is it lets the broadband LDC get started on making that happen. Uh, the Sullivan County Broadband LDC was created in 2020 by the Sullivan County Legislature to bring broadband to Sullivan County. And their plan to do that is to outfit broadcasting equipment on the county's public communication towers that can broadcast a wireless broadband signal. They applied for this EDA grant back in 2020. They applied in December of 2020. So they wanted to sort of get started on that process pretty soon after they were um, founded. And that money took a very long time to arrive. There was just administrative holdups, really. And they uh, got to the point where the broadband LDC really wanted to move ahead with their projects so that they could uh, start putting equipment in their towers before the end of the summer construction season. So they actually asked the Sullivan County Legislature for $2 million back in February. And the legislature gave them this a $2 million allotment of money to get started on their project. Once they received that money, they started hearing back from this federal agency that they originally asked in 2020. And the signs looked pretty promising. So they held off on using any of the county's money right away. And here we are in June. So that's five months later, February, March, April, May. Yeah, five months after the they went to the county. And they've received $1.7 million um, in this grant funding. So this is going to support them putting uh, broadcasting equipment in the towers throughout the county. I talked with Mike Brooks, uh, the LDC chairman, a little while ago uh, before this grant uh, was announced. But he said they're getting pretty close to um, having everything they need on the back end set up, like a name, customer service providers, uh, technological whatever's that need to happen before they can start providing service. So they're going to be working on putting equipment up in their towers, but they're getting pretty close to the point where they can start uh, selling uh, broadband internet access when they have those towers up. So I believe they already have equipment up in their Monticello tower and could, in theory, once everything else is ready, start selling from that tower pretty quickly. So... Still waiting on a direct timeline for that. I don't know if anyone will have this service by the end of the year, although that seems tentatively possible. 
Um, but certainly I'd imagine by the end of 2023, if uh, there aren't another set of administrative holdups. One of the things you brought up was also the, I guess the, the details, like some things people don't really think about like customer service. Like if you have a problem with your spectrum service, you could chat with them online or give them a call. And I guess now the county has to sort of handle that. And I'm assuming that they're, they're pushing it off to a third party to handle that. Yes. They're, they're looking to contract with third parties for that. And I think technically this LDC will be a third party. It's started by the county, but it's going to be sort of its own independent, semi-independent company. Um, but yeah, it's, it's not that they just need to put this infrastructure in place. They also need to have all of the things that people expect of a broadcast internet company. They're not going to be pushing this service onto anyone they're trying to create a service that's competitive enough to lure people away from their current broadband internet providers. So it's it's going to be a competitor in this market. It's not going to be a utility. So they do kind of need a lot of uh, things like like you said, people should people will want the same kind of experience with this new broadband company as they did with Spectrum or with Frontier or with whoever has been providing their internet. So I imagine that is something they'll be looking into going forward. Now let's take a look at what's going on in Ellenville and Ulster County. We were talking earlier about the state of mental health in Sullivan County and other parts of New York. What is the state of mental health services in your neck of the woods? Uh, I'm, I'm sort of in, in the middle of the early part of uh, research on this story, and it's really from the Ellenville angle. I was interested to hear Philip's uh, uh, descriptions of uh, the back and forth between Westchester and Kingston. Um, that probably fills in things for us that I hadn't understood yet. Um, our, our issue at this point is in Ellenville, there is a building, the Trudy Farber building, uh, was put up by the Resnick family. Um, and it was specifically uh, sort of designated for uh, the mental health services. And for years, there was mental health uh, provided, mental health services were provided by the county in that building. Now, it hasn't completely stopped. There's still mental health services there, but only on Wednesday. And when I have conversations with, say, uh, the police chief, filmmatrician, uh, he does make the point that, you know, mental health emergencies occur every day. I mean, it's, it's not like they wait till Wednesday. Um, and, you know, there's a sense that this is part of a longstanding um, issue that raises hackles and co brings complaints from people in Ellenville and Mawarsing and also Rochester um, that our part of the county is the, um, you know, is ignored, is, is, is far away and not particularly part of the concern of those in Kingston, who we see when they want to run for election, but then we don't see them again. Uh, and that's, you know, that, that's the, the lament of uh, remote places all over the world. But uh, we don't feel like we're that remote. <laughs> you know I mean? So anyway, um, so that's the issue. Uh, there are mental health crises constantly. They sometimes lead to dreadful tragedies. We think that uh, Ulster County needs to reconsider this and get mental health services in that building full time. And I'm waiting to hear from the county. I have sent questions to them, um, but I haven't heard back yet, but I'm expecting that I will. 
And that's a story that we will be following up. And of course, now, now I heard Philip's part of this, um, and I'm wondering if that's part of it as well, because it's on the other side of the issue, uh, Ulster County uh, being perhaps the smaller component talking to Westchester, uh, Westchester Health. So we'll have to see, that's, that, that's, that's developing. Um, but there is no doubt that uh, in Ellenville, we have, uh, we have issues and the pandemic has only accentuated some of these, these issues for people who perhaps have lost jobs uh, or have uh, had the, uh, the virus and haven't uh, done very well in recovery, you know, but there, there are a considerable number of problems. Now, one thing that Ulster County did do is create the mobile uh, mental health uh, operation, uh, which roams around the county, bringing mental health largely on, I think, an emergency response, which is fine, but as the police will, in Ellenville will tell you, they can call and say, we're having a, we've got somebody who's having a breakdown and uh, he's a danger to everybody or she is. And um, can we get something done? And it can take 90 minutes for the mobile mental health emergency service to show up. Well, that's a lot of time. Uh, and uh, the police, you know, can, can do so much, but only so much. And again, as the uh, as the chief of police told me uh, just this morning, um, there's two sides to this. On the one side, the Ellenville police, they're doing their training. They train police as much as they can to handle these sort of crises. Uh, but on the other side, they need the support of fully trained professionals, psychiatrists, psychologists, people who, who have this at a advanced level, PhDs, whatever, you know what I mean? Uh, those two things, there's the two sides to this. And so far, it's mostly the police dealing with it. And, you know, they have the training, they can do a certain amount. Um, most of them are pretty sympathetic, but uh, they can only go so far. They, you know, they need the rest of it. And then the other side of it is, as we said earlier on this, is mental health is an issue seven days a week, not just Wednesday. So um, that's that story, uh, and we'll just have to see how it develops and what we hear back from the county. Um, and noting, of course, that we're going to have a change of county executive. Pat Ryan is uh, moving on. He hopes to become uh, a congressman, and uh, we're looking to see who will appear out of the, uh, the competition to replace him um, and whether they'll be more uh, interested and sympathetic to the southwest corner of uh, Ulster County. And another fact the pandemic has had so far has been the housing market with housing, the price of homes going up tremendously also has affected the renting market. Also, I've seen some listings here locally, uh, which are very high compared to where they were. I remember being just a couple of years ago. What's the situation looking out in Ulster County and in Ellenville? Well, yes, that's exactly what you said. I don't know if it's doubling, but uh, rents are rising and uh, uh, rising fast. House prices have exploded in Ellenville, um, and we're seeing, well, I'm hearing, um, of, of 24,000 uh, selling for more than 200. Uh, you know, this, this sort of thing goes going on, and a lot of houses in the village of Ellenville are undergoing repairs colors of paint and so on and so on and where 
if there aren't leases, then month by month, those people are facing uh, hard times or evictions. Uh, leases, new leases will come in at a much higher rate. Um, and as you said, the migration continues and we're seeing that. Um, we had a, another the market on market, uh, farmer's market, so-called events last Friday. Uh, it was well attended. And it is, again, uh, a representation of the, the newcomer population. Um, and the way this is going with the rising rents and uh, new businesses coming left and right, beginning to sort of throw around funny terms, terminology is changing here. So we're starting to call Ellenville is going to be the Woodstock of Southwest Ulster County, uh, which will be, <laughs> of course, without tie dye, because we're not into that, but with a lot more pop, we're going to have Crisco Labs here, plus other entities that are going to be in that business. So, hey, too bad Woodstock. We're taking the lead, but that—that's the uh, those more vulnerable uh, who um, are only just getting by, or have uh, you know had uh, some setbacks due to the pandemic. Um, and uh, we are concerned. I think everyone is growing concerned about what's called now called workforce housing. Where are people going to? to be able to live. Uh, if all the rents rise and newcomers arrive and take, take every apartment and every house and all the rest of it, where are the already residential people here going to go? So th th this, this is one of those issues that uh, will require, I think, a response from the top. It's gonna to require push from the county. Uh, I, I'm not quite sure how that will happen, but it will also require probably uh, some major political effort in Albany. Um, you know, I, I'm not sure what else could be done uh, to to get some uh, what, what what would be apartment buildings built down here. Um, so that's that that sort of thing is 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 coming into focus a lot more. And I think on the minds of of town and village uh, government too. Yeah. Uh, thank you to everyone to joining us for another edition for the Reporters Roundtable. I've been your host, Patrice Robayo. We've been joined by Leah Mayo for the River Reporter, Chris Charlie with the Chicago Journal, Joseph Abraham from the Sullivan County Democrat, and Philip Pantuso from the Times Union. Don't forget that the Reporters Roundtable is a podcast. Search for WJFF, the Reporters Roundtable, wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. 